Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies, a podcast channel of New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman Newfield. Each summer, tens of thousands of American Jews attend sleepaway camps where they may see Hebrew signs, sing and dance to Hebrew songs, and hear a camp-specific hybrid language of English mixed with Hebrew. Hebrew infusion, language and community at American Jewish at American Jewish Summer Camps by Sarah Bunnen Benor, Jonathan Krasner, and Sharon Avni, published by Rutgers University Press in 2020, explains how camp directors and staff came to infuse Hebrew in creative ways and how their rationales and practices have evolved from the early 20th century to today. Sarah Bunnen Benor is Professor of Contemporary Jewish Studies at Hebrew Union College and courtesy professor of linguistics at the University of Southern California. Jonathan Krasner is the Jack Joseph and Morton Mandel Associate Professor of Jewish Education Research at Brandeis University, and Sharon Avni is Professor of Literacy and Linguistics at Borough of Manhattan Community College, City University of New York, and a Research Associate at the Research Institute for the Study of Language and Urban Society at the CUNY Graduate Center. I'm so glad their new book has brought them to our program. Welcome, uh, Sarah, Jonathan, and Sharon. Thank you. Thank you. So to get started, I always ask uh, guests to tell us a little bit about their background and what led them to write this work. So why don't we start with um, Jonathan? Could you tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to, to, to write this work? Well, uh, first of all, thank you, uh, Schneer Zalman, for having us uh, on the podcast. Uh, I am a camp person. Uh, I went to camp as a child. Uh, I was a division head at a summer camp uh, when I was a teenager. Um, uh, And uh, I sent my kids to summer camp. So I have been, you know, sort of around the camp business for many, many years. And I've always been fascinated with this particular type of educational environment. And uh, when my friend Sarah uh, approached me and suggested that we write a book about Hebrew and Jewish summer camp, I jumped at the opportunity. Terrific, terrific. Uh, Sharon, could you share a little bit about your background and what interests you in this particular project? Sure. Well, thank you also for having us on the program. And it's funny that you're going in this order because I'll because actually the idea originated with Sarah. So I'll leave her to tell that story. But um, I'm also a product of Jewish sleepaway camps. My parents shipped me out when I was a young child to a camp. And luckily, I loved it and spent many, many summers at camp. I never imagined as an adult that I would actually be studying them. Um, and Camps today are similar, but yet quite different from the camps that I went to in the 80s, early 90s. I don't want, well, 80s, I should say. I don't want to date myself, but I did. Um, but um, 
as a, someone who has studied Hebrew in the United States in different in other kinds of contexts, including um, day schools and um, uh, Jewish private day schools and synagogue schools and public schools, uh, the opportunity to study also at uh, camps was really um, a great just a great project that I really um, was excited to be involved in. Very, very good. And Sarah, could you tell us a little bit about the birth of this project and your background? Sure. Uh, I did not grow up going to Jewish sleepaway camps, but I did go to Jewish day camps. And when uh, I was, after I got my PhD, I was trying to decide on my next project. And I was thinking, I want a project that I can, uh, where I can compare Jewish groups of different denominations and orientations in their use of language. And so I thought a camp would be a good place to do that. And I started with a Ramah camp. And at that camp, I found out, wow, this is so much more interesting than just comparing how different groups speak. There's a lot going on here with language ideology about Hebrew. And so I started doing the research and then I realized that it's a much bigger project than I could do alone because A, I wanted to include many, many, many camps and B, I wanted to include a historical component because people kept asking me, why is it that at Ramah in particular, we uh, used to speak Hebrew and now we don't? And it was kind of ironic. Sorry, if Uh, I could just ask, what is Ramah? For listeners who are not uh, familiar. Thank you. Yes, Ramah is the camp network of the conservative movement of Judaism. The conservative movement being uh, not Orthodox, not Reform, somewhere in between. Uh, you know, I don't think we need to get into the whole history of the conservative movement. But um, and so the Ramah network... Has sorry, several sorry. Yes. If I could just add one thing, uh, we definitely don't don't want to get sidetracked with the history of of Jewish denominationalism in America. But but it is worth mentioning that the the name uh, the of the movement, the conservative movement, is somewhat mislabeled because it's actually a liberal branch of Judaism in America. Uh, just just to put that out there. Uh, please continue, Sarah. Yes. Thank you. Uh, and so there are several Ramah camps in North America. And uh, the so the research was born at a Ramah camp, but it includes camps of so many different denominations, reform, orthodox, uh, secular, but also various movements, various youth movements and um, groups with different orientations toward Israel and uh, various specialty groups within American Judaism. Right, right. Uh, very, very interesting. So um, let's let's uh, give the next question to Sharon. Uh, Sharon, could you in the book you talk about um, camp Hebraized English? What what does that mean exactly? What is camp Hebraized English? Sure. Okay. Well, we we name that. And we think about it as a variety of English that incorporates other varieties of Hebrew as well as other languages. So to unpack that statement a little bit, um, we think of languages like in any language, you could say that there are varieties of English. 
There's English may be spoken in different geographic areas or by different groups. So varieties are types of a language, right? So we think of this, we think of what we call campaigned English as a, a variety of English and that incorporates different varieties of Hebrew. So Hebrew itself is a language that, uh, because it is a biblical language, you know, the language of the Bible, so a language of antiquity, um, and, you know, lots of discussions about who wrote that, but we'll just leave that aside. But there's the biblical Hebrew, there's the Hebrew of the, of, of different time periods uh, through uh, the centuries. And then there is the modern Hebrew, which began to be revitalized as a spoken language. Um, we could probably say around in the late 1800s, but really took uh, on um, uh, major mo momentum with the uh, establishment of the state of Israel in 1948. So, that became modern Hebrew, which came out of biblical Hebrews and other and other varieties of Hebrew, uh, is the language spoken in uh, Israel today. So when we talk about camp Hebraized English, we're saying that it's a variety of English. So it's a spoke uh, it's a form of English that is incorporating these other varieties of Hebrew. So it might be biblical Hebrew in terms of prayer or um liturgy um it might include words that are spoken today and used in uh the vernacular of of modern of of israel and in addition there are also uh, other other um varieties or forms of, or, or languages that might also be part of it so some hebrew words uh, some yiddish words excuse me uh might filter into this um, some Aramaic words, because Aramaic was also a language of, of, uh, of sacred text at one point. Um, depending on the camp and the specific languages that might be the languages spoken by campers, there might even be some Russian or something like this. But so camp Hebraized English is really a variety that encompasses all of these languages but what we what, what it's contextual it's a, it's a register meaning it's a language used in a specific space in these camp spaces now is it the same exact language that's used among all the different camps no you know there's something like over 200 um american jewish sleepaway camps in the united states and in uh canada so you know, across the range of these 200 camps, because they're, they, they kind of uh, meet the different types of, of uh, Jewish communities uh, along the spectrum of, of North American Judaism, um, each, each camp might have a slightly different form of the variety spoken, but um, we found that there were a lot of similarities, but in general, just to give a, a short sort of, you know, thing that we think of Campyrist English as a, 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 a hybrid, a hybridic language that's drawing from all sorts of other languages that's doing a very specific uh, function uh, within the camp space. Right. Okay. And uh, thank you for that uh, kind of uh, laying out 
um, the topic here. Uh, Sarah, if we could go to you, um, what is Hebrew infusion and why do Jewish summer camps do it? Yes, so we, we selected the metaphor of infusion because it is something intentional. If a bartender adds some strawberry flavor or some mint flavor to a drink, they are adding just a flavor of it. And that's what's going on in the camp setting, that there is uh, English and then the, and the primarily English environment. And then the camp leaders intentionally incorporate elements of Hebrew into the camp environment, right? And just as the person drinking that drink doesn't get an entire strawberry or an entire, uh, you know, clump of mint, they are getting the flavor of that. And that's what's going on in the camp too. The campers and the staff are getting a flavor of Hebrew. And this happens through various practices, through signage throughout the camps, through games and activities and skits and Hebrew words used in English sentences, the camp Hebraized English that Sharon was talking about. Uh, an example might be, Chanichim and Madrichim, go to the Teatron for Pe'ulat Erev, which means <laughs> campers and counselors go to the amphitheater for the evening activity. And so that is a, a, an English, a camp Hebraized English sentence. It's an, another example of the camp leaders infusing Hebrew into the primarily English environment. It also happens through prayer, through songs, and all of these activities are meant not to teach the campers Hebrew, but to give the camp, campers a flavor of Hebrew and to give them a sense that Hebrew is important in Jewish communal life, in the camp setting, and as part of people, important for people who are part of the world Jewish community, and especially um, Zionists, people who are connected to Israel. Right. And uh, Jonathan, um, do other Jewish diaspora communities encourage Hebrew infusion in a similar way? I mean, your book focuses on American summer camps, uh, Jewish summer camps. Are, uh, is there a parallel phenomenon of this kind of uh, Hebrew infusion in other Jewish diaspora communities in other parts of the world? So let me unpack that a little bit. And the short answer is yes. Um, if you go around the world, um, or even if you go to your local synagogue, you're very likely to hear a variety of um, Hebraized English or Hebraized Spanish or you know whatever the mother language might be that you're speaking. It's not uncommon for people um, of you know in the Jewish community to use various Hebrew words and infuse them into their everyday speech. The question, the reason why I wanted to unpack it a little bit is because you use the word encourage, and I don't know necessarily whether it's always encouraged. One of the things that we found when we were doing our research is that there is a strong difference of opinion among camp people about whether or not camp Hebraized English is good or whether it is something that should be uh, avoided or something that should be discouraged. And more often than not, the people who want to discourage it argue precisely that you're not really speaking Hebrew 
when you are infusing Hebrew into English or if you are infusing Hebrew into your mother language, whatever it is, um, these people more often than not tend to be uh, in favor of teaching Hebrew as a living language. Um, and they're concerned that this kind of um, that this, this register uh, is in fact going to impede people from actually speaking Hebrew. Um, Sarah talked about ideologies before. There are lots of different ideologies of Hebrew. Um, and uh, depending on where you stand, um, you will either look askance at this or you'll celebrate it or maybe somewhere in between. Right. Okay. And um, Sharon, could you, uh, uh, Sarah already gave us one example of uh, a sentence that has um, Hebrew infusion in it that uh, may be popular in camp. I'm wondering if you could give us some more examples, either of, of spoken or visual um, representations of Hebrew infusion in, uh, in a camp setting. Sure. Yes. Okay. So um, trying to like think in my mind quickly about all the, all the examples. And of course, I'm drawing a bit of a blank about uh, all the different cheers. So I will say one thing is that the, you know, they, they come out in all sorts of activities until I can think of one exactly. I will at least tell you where you'll hear them. So for example, you might hear them just in announcements, you know, when camp gets together and maybe in the dining room. You, they might be during cheers, uh, you know, when, when kids are cheering each other for an activity or, or some sort of sports event. Uh, you might see it at flag raising, which is typically a morning activity at camps where the whole camp meets and they raise the, the flag of the camp or of the United States or of Canada, whatever it might be. Um, and so these activities could be, it could be while doing arts and crafts or something like that. So they, they take place in a range of activities. And I will also say that they're spoken by a range of people. So it's not only that the staff or the leadership are doing this, but one of the interesting things that we discovered in our research was that even for new campers who might be uh, arriving at the camp or going to the camp for the first time ever, uh, and they come across this new um, lingo, you know, this new jargon, and they don't know these words, they might not know the word for a dining room or for uh, singing and dancing or for different colors or whatever it is that the camp is using, um, that within a matter of really a day or two, camp, uh, campers are socialized to this new uh, this new register, and so I'm still unable to think of a specific example. But I do want to talk a little bit, and Sarah's going to have tons. Sarah's you could gonna, ask a friend; it's okay. I'm going to go right. I'm going to do my my lifeline. But I did want to just say one other thing. Sarah's always my lifeline, right? Remember that show? Uh, what was that? Do you want to be a millionaire? Who, who wants to be a millionaire? Sarah, Sarah would be the lifeline person. Like Sarah, what do you know about this? Um, but anyway, um, one of the things that interests that's interesting, I just want to add, is that often we think about um, camp, we think more about the things that are heard. Because you think that you're busy and you're running and you're doing and you think, oh, well, it's, a, it's, it's spoken language. And, and actually, there was an awful lot of written language, too. And the written language really came in signage, in different types of signage um, 
around camps. So often we would see, you know, within a sign, you might see um, a Hebrew word, uh, uh, the English um, equivalent. So let's say the sign said dining room, right? So it might say dining room, and then it might say the word in Hebrew. Um, and what we what was particularly interesting about the written forms of Hebrew that we uh, came across in camp and that we wrote a lot about in the book is that, you know, when making decisions about how to render or how to portray or depict Hebrew, there was a lot of, you know, you could read a lot into these depictions because you could write it in the actual Aleph Bet letters, the, and, and Hebrew can be pr in print, just like English, or there's also a script version, like a, a, a cursive version. And there's also a transliterated version, which is, you know, in English letters sounded out phonetically. And so the signage sometimes would have uh, the Hebrew lettering of the word. And then not to mention Hebrew, because Hebrew, you can use vowels, you can use markings to indicate how a, a consonant sounds if, if you need that. So sometimes it would have the consonant, sometimes it wouldn't. Uh, I'm sorry, so it would have the vowels and sometimes it wouldn't. Um, it would sometimes be in script or in um, block letters. Sometimes it would be in transliteration and sometimes it would have English too. So even within one sign, there was an incredible amount of multilingualism that we're using all these um, these codes. I'm going to pass it on to Sarah though because she's going to have lots of written. One second. We'll go to Sarah in a second, but I just have one follow-up uh, uh, for Sharon when you were talking about the different types of, 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 of letters or, or other um, uh, markings, you know, on these signs, the, the fact that you, that, that some places had, let's say the, the Nikudot, the, the, these uh, little um, uh, marks that tell you how to read the word and others had, you know, uh, uh, transliterated, it's, they have a Hebrew word written out in English letters, um, uh, what does that say in terms of the the level of Hebrew knowledge of the would-be readers, of the campers that are supposed to read these signs? Right. Well, that's a great question. And, you know, I don't, I think we, I don't think we said it yet, but by and large, American Jews don't speak or read uh, Hebrew with, uh, uh, with um, a lot of mastery. Um I think that's a, a you know a fair way to say it. It is not the the vernacular. It is not the vernacular of of North American Jews, and they have limited proficiency in the language. Now, some you know kids are learn it, learn to decode, so to just read the letters, uh, maybe in preparation for a bar and bar mitzvah, the ritual that children, uh, girls and boys do at ages of twelve and thirteen, respect. Uh, but um, in general, um, you know, it could range, there could be a camper. At the same camp, there could be campers who have virtually no knowledge of the Hebrew alphabet or Hebrew words to children who potentially could be children of Israelis uh, or Israelis themselves uh, who, who do have a lot of knowledge, right? And so there's a huge range. Um, but I think that mo most camps, except for a perhaps some outliers that have a very particular population that draw from a, a population of campers that are more um, deeply educated uh, in um, 
Judaism because maybe they go to private Jewish schools or uh, are more deeply involved in their synagogue life or something like that. Uh, for the most part, I think that most camps go under the assumption that their campers don't have a lot of, of, of uh, Hebrew literacy. And so um, the transliteration is a way to make something accessible. And, and so it can, be, it can be read, it can be pronounced, and therefore someone can take part in something. You know, if you're singing a song in Hebrew and it's only in Hebrew letters, well, you know, a camper who doesn't know Hebrew can't engage in that song and in that activity. Putting it in transliteration makes it, you know, it sort of, it, 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 it democratizes the language and makes it accessible uh, to everyone. Great. Okay. Um, so, uh, uh, Sarah, before you answer the question, I'm going to add a little bit to the question. Um, so could you give us a sense of how Hebrew infusion operates in a typical day at one of these camps and how uh, do these practices, uh, how these practices may differ from one camp to another? Because you talk about a range of, quote, Hebrew rich camps. There's a continuum. Some camps have more Hebrew, some camps have less. Could you give us a sense of how Hebrew shows up in, uh, in, in, uh, throughout, for, in a sort of typical uh, a day in camp, and how there may be variation in that based on just how much Hebrew a particular camp has? Sure, yes. Uh, well, from the most Hebrew-rich end of the continuum, you would have entire announcements in Hebrew. And in fact, some camps have a policy that you can't make announcements in English unless it's something about health and safety, and then there are exceptions to that rule. Um, but that's very few camps. Most of the camps in North America have a little bit of Hebrew. And uh, an example of the kinds of things that you would see at many different types of camps would be the word hakshivu or hakshivu na, which means attention, attention, or pay attention, please. And so they would start the announcements with that. So it would be hakshivu, hakshivu na, and then it would continue to the announcement in English. Um, or it could be um, a now we're going to have hodaot, which means announcements. And then sometimes they do this in a ritualized way that makes the kids feel attached to it and makes it more fun. So sometimes they do it with a chant or a particular intonation pattern like hodaot. And then the kids might respond announcements in that same intonation pattern. Um, so that's one way. Another way is through little games and skits. And some of these are intentionally pedagogical. They want to teach a little bit of Hebrew. So, for example, they might find a word that has a similar sounding word, a homonym in English, and they'll teach the word by, by uh, pointing out the connection between the Hebrew and English words. Like the word bite means house. And it sounds like the English phrase by it. So they might say... There, and, and this is often done by the visiting Israeli counselors. There are a lot of visiting Israeli staff members at American Jewish summer camps. It, it, there's a whole systematized process for that. Uh, and so the Israeli in their Israeli accent might say something like, there is a house I want to bite. House, bite. House, bite. And so that last part means, uh, you know, Hebrew person speak Hebrew. 
And that is a phrase that stems back to the um, pre-state years before Israel was a state when Hebrew was um, really being advocated as the, the primary language and people who were speaking Yiddish or Ladino or whatever other language were encouraged to speak Hebrew. And that is what's happening at the camps too. They're encouraged to speak Hebrew, but not really to speak Hebrew, really to speak Camp Hebraized English and to use some Hebrew words in fun ways. And so by by having this little jingle and making it a fun game, they are teaching a few Hebrew words, but they're also teaching the campers that Hebrew is something that they should think of as fun and that they should think of as their own. Right. Um, Jonathan, uh, to step back a little bit um, and give a, a, a little bit of a historical context for Jewish summer camps, how popular um, were uh, Jewish summer camps in America uh, historically, uh, and why were they uh, so popular? So uh, basically the story of summer camps in the Jewish community really mirrors summer camps in American society more generally. So the phenomenon of summer camping goes back to the late 19th century, and uh, one of the motivations for summer camps was, uh, I think, a real fear that America was becoming urbanized and that people were losing their relationship with the land, with the great outdoors. Um, And so people wanted to send their kids to summer camp so that they could commune with nature and that they could escape uh, the evils of the city. Um, For the rich, I think this was more about morals and ethics and a certain idea that uh, urban life was uh, corrupt. And uh, for the poor people, um, for the, the working class and the poor, Um, It was really also a matter of health um, because many of them were living in congested uh, areas um, and uh, disease was often rife in the summertime and people would send kids to the country because they believed that the clean country air would have a health benefit. Um, Now, these camps were often very religiously segregated. And so when Jews started coming here in large numbers at the turn of the century, um, we had the 20th century. Yes. I'm sorry. The, uh, the uh, beginning of the 20th century, right. Uh, We ended up seeing uh, philanthropists um, set up what we would think of as fresh air camps, camps for poor kids. um, And, Uh, Jews would do just as non-Jews would do. They would set up these camps um, and send the Jewish poor out to the country. And this became very, very popular. And a lot of uh, what are now known as federations or these sort of combined philanthropic agencies um, that deal with many aspects of Jewish communal life, they would set up these camps um, or they would be YMHA camps, young men's Hebrew association camps that would mirror the young men's Christian association camps that were set up for Christian kids. Um, For the rich, uh, it was also a status thing. So while you had these poorer camps that were started, you also had Jewish camps for the rich. um, And uh, you had people who were uh, strivers, people who were, uh, you know, wanting to 
uh, show that they were entering the middle class, would send their kids to these camps. Um, and this became very popular in the Jewish community. Um, what happened in the 20s and 30s is that you had an explosion of different kinds of camps. Um, so you might have Zionist camps, you might have Yiddishist camps, um, all different kinds of camps. And then after World War II, there was another sort of growth spurt of these camps as people moved to the suburbs and had more disposable income, um, sending their kids to camps. You had the different denominations getting into the camping business as well. So Sarah mentioned the Ramah camps before. They're the conservative movement camps. You have the reform movement camps. Uh, you have Orthodox camps that also were established at this time as well. Right, right. And uh, uh, Sharon, how popular are camp, uh, Jewish summer camps in America uh, these days? And approximately, do we have any sense of just how many or what percentage of American Jewish children attend these kinds of camps? Or, or, or just a sense of, you know, how, how, many, how many camps there are, uh, how many children are going to them? I mean, is this a sort of marginal phenomenon? Is this a, a very mainstream thing for American Jew, Jewish children to do, uh, to spend their summers doing? Yeah, so, yeah, so it, you know, as Jonathan just mentioned, it, it had like a growth spurt uh, uh, at one point in the 50s and 60s, and, and then various ups and downs. And I would say today, that camps are very hot, <laughs> that they're really in a new phase. I think that Jewish camping is in a new phase today. And um, like I said before, there is a, an umbrella organization that uh, sort of um, works with very, you know, with all, with, with camps. And I think that they say there's something like 200, 200 plus camps across the United States. Um, I can't, um, I think that they say something like 250,000 campers every summer. That doesn't necessarily, though, include all of the staff. So st a staff might be a 17-year-old uh, young adult. <laughs> uh, so there's also tens of thousands of young adults or adults uh, that, are, that are also going to these camps. Uh, and so... Um, I think that these are significant numbers. Um, in certain towns, um, you know, in certain towns in, in places like New York, in uh, California, I bet you, you know, in towns where there are, are larger Jewish populations, over the summer, you will, you will know kids are, you know, a, a large percentage of the Jewish kids disappear to these camps, right? The many. The reason why I also say that Jewish camps are very hot today is because in addition to all of the camps that Jonathan just mentioned that emerged throughout the 1900s, um, over the past, I would say, decade or so, maybe a little longer, there's been these specialized camps that have opened up that have become extremely popular. Camps like about um, environmentalism, sports, uh, uh, computers and that kind of stuff. So they're they're Jewish summer camps, but with a, a very particular focus. These and they were developed as incubator camps to see if these ideas would even you know fly. And and they and they certainly did. Um, and and in general, 
the last thing I would point to to just say that, you know, um, I think the momentum is is building and growing about camps is that I think overwhelmingly the broader Jewish community, uh, the organizational, institutional Jewish community, that is the synagogues, the, um, the philanthropists, the the places like Federation and other organizations that serve uh, the Jewish community have have across the board agreement. And this is one of the few things I think in Judaism that all Jews agree about. <laughs> camps are a great place for Jewish kids and that the Jewish community wants to continue to grow them and for them to be uh, vibrant uh, places for youth that these are places that are doing uh, amazing things. You know, uh, I could probably use some of the rhetoric that they talk about, but in general, that these are, they've identified camps as, as, as um, uh, hothouses of great uh, Jewish growth and development and uh, Jewish identity. And so I think that overall, that Jewish camping right now is in a very uh, strong position. Now, obviously, last year, because of COVID, it was a tough year. And this summer, I think camps, you know, even more than ever, uh, um, parents and community members recognize the importance of these camps. And so I, I, I have no expectation that that will change going forward. Right, right. Okay. Uh, I just wanted to throw in here, I'm sorry to interrupt, but um, I have the benefit that uh, Sharon didn't have of actually having these numbers in front of me. So um, there are, uh, according to the latest Foundation for Jewish Camp report, there are 166 um, Jewish camps nonprofit. That means not private camps for profit, but camps that are you know nonprofit with 81,000 uh, roughly uh, campers. So a little less than what Sharon said, but remember there are also a lot of private camps that are Jewish owned that may have some Jewish content that wouldn't be included. Um, and it still represents a significant um, proportion of the affiliated Jewish community sending their kids to these camps. Yeah, right. and uh, thank the, you for that. the number of, uh, and that just includes the sleepaway camps, right, Jonathan? Yes, that just includes the so, sleepaway. So a, a much larger percentage of American Jews attend day camps. And the, the most recent Pew study, I also had a chance to look it up, uh, says that 40% of camps, uh, 40, 40, sorry, 40% of people who are willing to tell a surveyor that they're Jewish uh, said, uh, report that they have um, attended a summer camp with Jewish content. That's that's a pretty large percentage of American Jews, right? Yeah, that's a, I think that's a tremendous percentage. It's close to 50%, almost one in every two Jews that, you you know, the people that identify as Jewish, uh, that, that's a very high percentage. And, and, and uh, as you mentioned in, in your book, that even though the focus of your book is on sleepaway camps, but, but we know uh, that the, the, the kinds of Hebrew infusion practices that you describe taking place at sleepaway camps are, are also taking place, uh, at least to some extent, at the, the day camps as well. So th- those, uh, these practices live on there as well. Um, okay, so uh, Sarah, could you um, 
Tell us, you mentioned before the issue of the the kind of ideology or something about the Hebrew infusion. Uh, could you tell us uh, what camp directors and campers say uh, are the rationales for Hebrew infusion in the camps? Yes. So in interviews and in a survey that we conducted among camp directors, we found that there are several rationales for incorporating Hebrew into the primarily English environment of summer camps. And they have to do with Israel, with religion, with Jewish peoplehood, and with making camp a special place and with camp tradition. And so all of those um, foci are important to various extents at various times and at various camps. So we talk about Hebrew as a flexible signifier, which means that it can have different social meanings in different contexts. And so it might have more of a sense of relationship to Israel in one context and another context with religion. And another context, it might be all about camp tradition. And so you might think about it as a little neon sign with all of these rationales on it and different parts light up at different uh, times at each particular camp. And some camps might be all about Zionism and some camps might be might have little interest in Israel because they consider it too controversial at their camp. And some camps might be primarily interested in a particular subgroup of American Jews like Sephardic Jews or Russian Jews or Jews of color or eco-Jews, eco-Judaism. And so all of these subgroups of American Jews also have their own particular Hebrew practices that are useful to that particular community. And so when we asked camp directors what, um, why they do certain th- things and <clears throat> when we asked them about particular goals that they have for their camp pedagogical goals, the goals of Hebrew proficiency, teaching people to be able to speak Hebrew, were very, very low. Most camps were really not interested in that at all. A few camps were, especially camps in the Ramah network and um, some that are officially Hebraist camps. But most of the camps really weren't interested in that. What they were interested in is Jewish identity and connection, connection to Israel, connection to other Jews and connection to the camp. And so all of those goals are what we see as the primary reason for Hebrew infusion, that Hebrew infusion is a means to an end. And that end is really that sense of connection and identity. Right. And um, Jonathan, speaking of Israel, what is the relationship between Hebrew infusion practices at American uh, Jewish camps and the state of Israel? How does that work out? It's an interesting question. Uh, Certainly the uh, development of Zionism uh, in the 20s and the 30s um, had an impact on American Jews, or at least a subset of American Jews. And some of those Jews went on to start some of these legacy camps, and speaking Hebrew was very important to them um, for ideological reasons. Uh, What some of them found over time is that it was very difficult unless it was really, um, I'd say, mission Uh, specific for a camp. I mean, there are a handful of camps where Hebrew speaking was really central to the mission. 
Um, but if it's just something that you want kids to do, um, that's a very heavy lift. And so what ended up happening um, is over time, some of the camps that may have flirted with the idea of speaking Hebrew, they over time became more uh, attached to this idea of Hebrew infusion. And one of the ways that Hebrew infusion was brought to the camps was through the influx of Israeli counselors. So when you're asking about the relationship between Israel and these camps, I think that Israeli counselors and Israeli staff people do play an important role in bringing Hebrew culture to the camps. Um, now, it's interesting because some of, if you speak with some of these counselors, some of these staff people, they're a little bit conflicted because they want the kids to like them. They want to be cool. They want um, to uh, get the kids to like Israel. Um, and speaking Hebrew all the time is not necessarily going to endear them to kids who don't speak the language that well. Um, but each camp in their own way, I think, finds um, a, 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 you know, sort of a, a place, a comfort zone, I suppose, where um, they find that the level of Hebrew infusion that works for them um, and the counselors from Israel become ambassadors of the Hebrew language um, to these camps. Um, so I, I think that that is, at least in a nutshell, what the relationship is. Right. And uh, continuing on this this uh, theme, uh, Sharon, um, how does having uh, um, counselors or other staff from Israel at the camp complicate the issue of authentic Hebrew uh, at these camps? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, obviously, the Israelis that come are speaking Hebrew. They're speaking the language that they use in, in their lives in Israel. Right. Um, and uh, they show up at camp. And one of the things we discovered in our research was that, just like I mentioned before, that there might be a new camper who shows up and doesn't know this language and has to quickly get socialized into the language. Um, same thing to some degree happens with Israelis who, Hebrew speaking uh, as they are, they come and they realize, well, the Hebrew at camp is not, like I said before, it's not, it's not their variety. <laughs> and they have to actually learn this variety that is happening at camp. Now, the variety um, that is happening at camp, that is being used at camp, it's not only um, camp Hebraized English, which we spoke about, it's also, uh, oh, and I forgot to mention actually one thing that I realized, Camp Hebraized uh, English can also be words that uh, um, that only exist within the campscape, that outside <laughs> of the camp context, no one uses those words. And, and so a word, for example, uh, if you go to like the uh, health clinic, the infirmary, uh, that's called the Mirpa'an Hebrew. Right. And over the years, this word has been uh, uh, truncated and shortened to be something like the mark or the <laughs> depending on the camp. Right. And so an Israeli who might know the word mirpa'a in and of itself, that might be even a word that they don't use so much today in, in uh, Israel. But they um, they come to this camp, they hear this word mark and they have to <laughs> and they have to 
learn that that's the word for um, for the infirmary. Now they could use the word that is used in Hebrew for the clinic or the whatever, <laughs> the health clinic, but that's not gonna be the word that's used at camp. And so they have to adjust or negotiate that kind of, um, the, 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 the authenticity of Hebrew is, is what the Hebrew is being used at camp, not necessarily what the Hebrew is in Israel. And um, that might also be in pronunciation. So for example, so it's not only in, lex, in, 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 in the lexicon using different words, but it's also uh, pronunciation where, for example, um, I don't know, um, you know, in, in Israeli, might say mazal tov. So with the stress being one way, whereas, you know, in American Jews, we'll say mazal tov. So, um, for good luck. For good luck, yes. Or congratulations. Um, so what we what we found was that, you know, little by little among themselves, if they're talking among themselves, the Israelis will speak like they would in Israel. But if they're speaking with campers or others, they tend to uh, take on the the language of, of the locals. <laughs> of, <laughs> and, um, you know, and that that's sort of interesting. You see it not only so phonetically and um and uh, Lexicon, you see pragmatically also, there's all sorts of examples of, of how that happens. I mean, one thing that we don't know, which is sort of an interesting question and open-ended is, you know, like um, once they go back to Israel, um, when they're talking with other people who maybe also had a camp experience, you know, what way are they talking about it? Um, and so, you know, I think if nothing else, it, it just makes them aware of a different, um, a different relationship that American Jews have uh, to Hebrew. The last thing I'll just say about this also, that is that um, some, uh, many times these Israelis don't necessarily have uh, a lot of uh, religious background. And so they might be what's called secular. Israelis. So they are Jewish, but they don't necessarily have any um, uh, religious practices, right? And so they show up in American camps where they might have uh, uh, Friday night services or Saturday services, or some camps, in fact, have daily uh, prayer services. And these Israelis all of a sudden are encountering a form of Hebrew, <laughs> the liturgy, that they, they don't have um, a lot of experience using. They might have studied it as a content, you know, in school, but um, you know they have to also learn that 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 form of Hebrew too, in some ways. Right, and uh, Sarah, I'm wondering if you could um, add a little bit to to what Sharon said in terms of uh, these words that are camp specific. That not only <laughs> that they're not used, let's say, frequently by uh, Hebrew speakers in Israel or in other places, but they're actually sort of created by camp, in camp, and that they're only used by people in the camp context. Yes, well, um, so MARP is, is one of the most commonly discussed examples of that, but there are several other options of clippings and portmanteaus where, you know, they combine words uh, so, for example, tefloptions, which is tefillah options, prayer options, 
or PNIC, which stands for personal nikayon. Nikayon is cleaning, but in this case, it means taking a shower. <laughs> um, and so nikayon is generally used in the camp setting to mean bunk, uh, cleaning your bunk. You know, it's time for nikayon. We have to clean the bunk. Um, but then also, let's see, another one is um, havdalon, which is havdalah, the ceremony that separates Shabbat from the rest of the week that you that you 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 uh, you know do some prayers at the end of Shabbat on Saturday night and lawn havdalah lawn becomes havdalon. Um, so <laughs> these are not common to many camps. They're kind of unique to some particular camps or some camp networks. Um, another example is the word melts. So the word meltsar means waiter. And if the word meltsar is pronounced in with an American accent, it sounds like a meltser. A melzer. So, what? What do you? Someone who is a melzer melts, right? So, the so people use that as a verb. To melt is to wait tables. Who's melting tonight, right? And so, these kinds of words are very uh, interesting to people who speak Hebrew and come to the camp setting. They don't necessarily understand these words, and it's a source of a lot of conversation, you know. And for some people, it's a source of humor. For other people, it's a source of pride, and for others, it's a it's a source of ridicule. Right. So it it certainly highlights a point that was already made that that the the whole idea of Hebrew infusion or the or the the, the representation of Hebrew at these summer camps is something different than uh, kind of a Hebrew immersion program where you're really trying to teach the campers the Hebrew language and that they should go away from camp being able to speak kind of regular standard Hebrew, that if you have these kinds of, of Hebrew English uh, constructions that, you know, no one would say in any other context, uh, clearly the purpose of Hebrew at camp is something other than a standard uh, Hebrew language program. Exactly. And when when uh, when I said it's a source of ridicule, that's exactly what people are concerned about. They, they say, well, if you want people to learn Hebrew, then you the teaching these words is not helpful because they're going to think they're Hebrew and they're not. Or even even using the word. Um, what is the word for canteen at uh, at Hanutia? Hanutia. Yes, I think that's it. Uh, so if you if it's um, if you, people use that word chanutia at the camp, they might think, oh, I'm going to go to Israel and ask Efoa chanutia, where's the store? But you know that's not the word they would use for store there in Israel. So um, and, and so right, but because the goals of these camp leaders are really not to teach the Hebrew language, it's okay that they use these words, and because. Their goal is to make Hebrew fun and to make to foster Jewish identity. They really are serving their goals by having by having these fun new camp Hebraized English constructions. Right, and um, uh, Jonathan, um, what is the current constellation of Hebrew infusion practices at Jewish summer camps say about the American Jewish community today? So, well, first of all, I think that as we've uh, alluded to earlier, um, the constellation of um, 
of practices can be graphed on a continuum. So um, looking at how different camps use Hebrew can tell you a lot about the camp itself and maybe it could tell you something about the religious ideology of a camp. Maybe it could tell you something about the values uh, of a camp. So for example, uh, when we think about, let's say, infusing Hebrew, are you infusing Hebrew with uh, a Ashkenazi, that is a sort of Eastern European uh, vocalization, or are you um, infusing Hebrew with a more Israeli or Sephardic uh, or a kind of a vocalization? That could probably tell you something about the community that's sponsoring the camp. Um, It could tell you something about the educational values of the people uh, who are sponsoring the camp. Um, uh, I know that Sarah had the opportunity to go to some fairly stringent Orthodox camps. They infuse a lot of Hebrew and Yiddish into their camp, but it sounds very, very different from the Hebrew that might be infused in, let's say, uh, a more secular Zionist camp or uh, even a conservative movement camp. So depending on the kind of Hebrew that you're hearing, that can tell you a lot about the values of the camp and just about the general background of the camp. Because some of that Hebrew, after all, is carried over from the rest of the year. So if you were to go into a, uh, let's say, an Orthodox synagogue, you would hear a lot of Hebrew and Yiddish infused into the daily language there. And that gets carried over to the camps. So too, if you go into a reform or a conservative synagogue, you'll hear a lot of Hebrew as well. But think of it as a a Venn diagram. There's only a certain amount that's overlapping between those two contexts. You might hear Shabbat Shalom in both places, right? Or Good Shabbos. But but, but beyond that, um, for example, you might hear the word B'Tselem Elohim, to be created in God's image um, in a reform context, that's a big deal. Um, whereas uh, in an Orthodox context, um, you might not hear that, but you might hear Emir Hashem. Um, you know, uh, uh, let's say, I hope that it should be that way. Uh, God should should make it that way or something something along those lines. So it's a different register, I guess is the right word, right? Right, right. And the the last question uh, for Sharon. Um, to, so we, we've discussed how there's clearly different um, goals at these different camps in terms of why they're, uh, you know, performing, engaging in these uh, practices of Hebrew infusion. Um, so finally, to what extent um, have you found that Hebrew infusion is effective at achieving those diverse goals that these camps set out to 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 achieve wow so you leave the tough question <laughs> it's really what you're asking in a way and i don't think this is intentional or not but you're really asking it in the in the in the in the language of sort of outcomes you know and do we know that that this yields you know is if you put X in, no, no, and uh, and and then I think that for for um, 
for a segment of people who um, support camping and the Jewish community and donors and philanthropists and others, educators, uh, that those are the questions they want to know. What works? What, in fact, builds and sustains <laughs> uh, Jewish identity over, over the lifespan of, you know, of, 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 of individuals and builds a community? Um, and, and I think that, you know, in the case of language in any community, I'm going to take a little bit of a pass at the question, because I think in the case of any community, I don't think that there's ever really great predictability. And I don't think that um, we can think about if you know X language at some particular level of proficiency, that it is going to cause you to act or behave or to think in a particular way all the time consistently. Um, I don't know if that's how life works, and I, I personally don't believe that's how language works. <laughs> and so um, we know that camps are really successful. Oh, I just heard an echo. I don't know if you guys did. Um, we know that camps are, are very successful and that you know campers go back. That's a sign of their success. We know that they're using the, this, this, this variety and that um, when when people talk about their camp experiences, if you if you encounter an, an uh, alumni from a camp, you know, 20, 30 years after their their own camping experience as campers, they're still using this vocabulary, right? It might be slightly different because it was decades ago or something, but in general, they are thrilled to have the opportunity to speak in this way. So I think that also points to a particular type of success. I don't know whether these people in their home practices or, you know, are they raising Jewish children? Are they lighting Shabbat candles? Are they members of a synagogue? Those kinds of outcomes that are often, you know, in survey, in demographic kind of religious studies. I can't say that, you know, the Hebrew, um, the infusion practices or the types of Hebrew that are used at camp are going to yield that. But I think I would just say I, I think that they're really the wrong questions, because I think that um, at camp that what we found, at least in our research, is that these language practices are incredibly powerful. They're sites of creativity. They're sites of vibrancy. And I think that that is, um, you know, in my at least from my perspective, a success. And I don't you know, maybe Sarah and Jonathan agree or not but that i guess and i hope i answered the question or didn't <laughs> no no you you answered the question i i i i think that's a very fair answer um uh there's so much more that we could discuss but we'll have to leave it there for now thank you all so much for taking the time to share thoughts with us today thank you thank you so much this was a pleasure thank you that concludes our program thanks for listening and have a great day